please bow your heads and let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story that Jesus told, uh, a made-up story, but which tells us something which is very important and very true. Uh, so therefore, please uh, may our hearts be receptive to the purpose of this story, uh, its teaching content, uh, its deeper hidden meaning. And may you reveal it to us, and may we go away blessed as a result, uh, more informed as to how we can live life faithfully uh, for you now uh, as we wait for Jesus' return. Amen. Well, in the movie The Castaway, uh, released in December 2000, uh, Tom Hanks plays Chuck Noland. He's a FedEx manager, and his plane crashes in the South Pacific. Uh, Chuck Noland is stranded on an uninhabited island for four years. And eventually, against all odds, he manages to make his way back to civilization on a makeshift raft. Uh, on his return, he is shocked to find that his wife, Kelly, has since remarried and had a child. Uh, she had been left in this agonizing limbo of not knowing if her husband would ever return. And as the years passed, she had given up all hope and decided she had to move on. Living with such uncertainty makes it very difficult to live life in the present well. If only she had known that he would come back. Well, the parable that Jesus told is about Jesus leaving us to go on a journey. But unlike Chuck Noland, Jesus' return is certain. And what's more, through this parable, Jesus tells us what we can expect when he does return. And he does this so that we are not left in limbo. Jesus equips us to live lives well now as we wait for his return. Now, one of the first rules for interpreting a parable is to look for any contextual clues as to why it was told. And in verse 11, we get a big one that served to us on a plate. Verse 11. He, that is Jesus, went on to tell him a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Uh, Jesus' cause for concern was that people had a wrong expectation about his kingdom. Uh, Jesus has been journeying to Jerusalem ever since chapter 9, verse 51, when he sets out, and now he is very close to Jerusalem. Now, the popular expectation was that on reaching Jerusalem, the Messiah would establish his kingdom with power. Uh, he would overthrow the occupying Roman forces, and boot them out and set up his kingdom. And so the nearer Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the greater the sense of expectation was building amongst the crowds that were following him. Now then, Jesus had repeatedly taught uh, that in Jerusalem, he was going to be rejected and killed. But even his disciples, of course, didn't understand this. Uh, Jesus taught them of his death and departure, but this made no sense whatsoever to them. And so you see, uh, it is to correct this wrong expectation of God's kingdom appearing immediately that Jesus tells this story. And we're going to see the story breaks down into four sections, the journey, the commission, 
the rejection and the return. So firstly, the journey. Uh, firstly, the story opens with a man embarking on a long journey. Verse 12. Uh, Jesus said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Well, there are no prizes for guessing to whom and what this refers. I've already given it away in the intro. Who is the man of noble birth? Of course, it's Jesus. And the distant country he goes to is heaven. And the receiving of a kingdom when he gets there is, of course, Jesus' exaltation to the right hand of the Father. And the nobleman's return, then, is the return of Jesus in all his glory. So you get the point. Jesus wasn't about to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. Rather, he was going to leave Jerusalem for heaven. And he would be gone for some time. And the kingdom would not come immediately. And indeed, his crowning as king would not take place in the capital city, but in the courts of heaven. But then one day, finally, Jesus would return. Now, the most direct line of application and connection to our day would be Christians who expect God to heal and to bless us with prosperity now. Uh, Christians who expect this make the mistake of expecting that what God has promised for the new creation, he's going to give us now. And so, in a sense, they're expecting the kingdom to come all at once, and that's a mistake. However, I suspect that that is not a major danger for many of us. Rather, I think that we are probably more prone to falling off the other side of the horse. Uh, what do I mean? Well, the crowds thought that the kingdom was going to come all at once. But I think, if anything, we are more prone to thinking that the kingdom is not going to come at all. Now, before you stone me, uh, hear me out, because I think this can operate at two levels. Uh, firstly, basic belief. For some people, the fact that we have been waiting over 2,000 years for Jesus' return is a real barrier to basic belief. Is Jesus really going to come back? It's been over 2,000 years. And people, therefore, some people really struggle to believe that Jesus is going to come back at all. They think it's all make-believe. And that undermines their confidence that Christianity is true. Other people have this basic belief in place. And of course, uh, we here believe that Jesus will return. But the challenge is this. It's to maintain that, that as a functional belief. In other words, how do we keep it informing and shaping our day-to-day -day lives and decisions? How do we strengthen our functional belief in Jesus' return? Are we really living as if Jesus could come back tomorrow? And I'd suggest to you that all us struggle to keep that focus. So this parable helps us to live well as we wait, so that we can have no regrets when Jesus does return. So we've seen firstly the journey. Secondly, the commission. Before the nobleman leaves, he calls his servants together, verse 13. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minors. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. 
Now, the term servants is a common New Testament description for Jesus' followers. In other words, Christians, people who are trusting in Christ. And we see there are 10 servants, and the master gives them 10 minus, one each. Now, a minor was about three months' wages for a laborer. So it's a portion of money. And the master tells them to put this money to work to make a profit while he is away. So here's the question. Uh, what does the minor represent? What does it stand for in real life? Well, we are not told specifically. The only help we get from the story is that each servant is given the same amount and that this money is to be put to profitable work for the nobleman whilst he's away. Now, it is true that we all have different gifts and levels of ability, but I don't think that is the point being made here in this parable. Because this parable is not so much about giftedness, but more about faithfulness. The point would seem to be that we have all received the same gospel. Every believer, every follower of Jesus has the same responsibility to work hard for the kingdom until Jesus comes again. That Jesus wants his followers to do gospel work in the world. And he calls us to live lives that are faithful to and fruitful for the gospel. But here's the question. Uh, what does that look like practically? Well, being faithful and fruitful involves the good use of everything. God has entrusted to us our faith, our time, our gifts, our resources, our lives. Uh, being faithful and fruitful has numerous outworkings. Uh, firstly, growth, our personal growth in our Christian faith uh, through ongoing repentance and renewal. Uh, trust, trusting God to meet our needs and to guide our decisions. Love, loving and serving others and meeting their needs. Evangelism, sharing our faith with others and partnership prayerfully and financially supporting the global church and mission work throughout the world. And being faithful and fruitful permeates every area of our lives, our home life, our church life, our work life, our student life. And so it will therefore mean that in everything we ask, how can I serve King Jesus in this situation? So we've seen the journey, uh, the commission, now thirdly, the rejection. Uh, thus far, we have been introduced to the king's servants. However, this parable involves two groups of people. And so now in verse 14, we meet the second group, who are referred to as the king's subjects. Verse 14. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Jesus' fellow countrymen would have related very well to this story, for it had a recent and grisly historical precedent. Uh, when King Herod the Great died in 4 BC, his son Archelaus expected to take the throne. However, because Judea was a Roman province, uh, he had to go to Rome to have his succession confirmed 
by Emperor Augustus. However, Archelaus was bitterly hated by the Jews in Palestine, and consequently, they sent a 50-strong delegation to protest against his appointment and to warn that there would be a revolt if Archelaus was made king. And as a result, Caesar decided that he wouldn't give him the title king, but instead only make him what was called an ethnarch, which is like a governor. The historical parallel with Jesus' story that would not have been lost on Jesus' hearers. Jesus' warning that this is how the majority will respond to him. People are going to reject his rule over them. Uh, he knows that this will happen. And Jesus also tells us the reason why they will reject him and why they will hate him. Because they do not want him to rule over them. That is incredibly insightful, isn't it? As we saw last week, uh, if you recall, with the five brothers, when we looked at the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the five brothers of the rich man, uh, we were told they wouldn't be convinced even if somebody was raised from the dead. You see, people's main problem with Jesus is not intellectual. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not that they would believe if only they could be more convinced. People's real problem and barrier to belief is not intellectual, but to do with their hearts. It's moral. It's not a matter of intellect, but the will. People do not want Jesus to reign over them. And of course, we know this is the very essence of sin. Our people are adamant that they will have, not have their beliefs and their behaviors dictated to them by higher authority. They say, I will not have this Jesus rule over me. So finally, uh, why does it matter how we respond anyway? And so we move fourthly to the return. Verse 15. He was made king, however, and returned home. And the rest of the parable tells us what happens when the king does return and calls everyone to account. So in verses 15 to 26, uh, he deals with his servants. And then in verse 27, he deals with his subjects who have declared themselves his enemies. So firstly, his servants. On his return, uh, they all called before him to give an account of their themselves to him. Verse 15 continues. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. And the good news is that those servants who had been faithful are handsomely rewarded. Uh, Jesus doesn't run through all 10 servants in his story. Uh, he takes two of them as an example of faithful servants. And both are put to work what was entrusted to them both of them have made a profit. Both have been active in the king's service and both are handsomely rewarded. Now, the reward in the story is to share the king's rule. They rule over cities and the reward is proportional to their faithfulness in serving him in his absence. Verse 17. 
Well done, my good servants, the master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. And the first made ten miners and gets ten cities to rule over. The second made five miners and gets five cities to rule over. You see the point. We know, of course, heaven is a gift. We can't earn it. But in heaven, there are rewards according to our faithfulness here on earth to our master. And we find, of course, this principle elsewhere in Scripture. Think about in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus talks there about storing up treasure in heaven. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians 3. is another example, verse 12 to 15, and we'll look at this one. The Apostle Paul says this, talking about the Christians building on the foundation of their faith in Christ. If any man builds on this foundation, that is Jesus Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. But if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Uh, we do struggle to understand how heaven could still be heaven if we suffer loss and miss out on reward when others get more of a reward. Uh, won't we be envious? Won't we be jealous? Won't we be disappointed? Uh, it starts to sound a bit like getting the HSC results all over again. Suffice to say, all God's people will be perfectly happy in heaven, but rewards will vary according to their faithfulness in this life. And so you see, this encourages in our service to the king now. For we know that everything we do for him counts. He sees it. It goes into his book. Our prayers behind closed doors. Our giving to others or to organizations that nobody else knows about. God sees it. And he will reward it when he returns. In verses 20 to 26, the mood changes dramatically. Uh, we read of a third servant who came saying this in verse 20. Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. Uh, this chap has done nothing with what he was given. He's just wrapped it up in a piece of cloth and put it in his drawer or under his mattress. He hasn't even put it in a high-interest ING account for his master. Yet rather than owning up to his failure, he even then tries to blame his master. Verse 21, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. And this chap has a pretty skewed understanding and view of his master. This chap has this functional belief rooted in a perception of his master's character that shaped his behavior in his master's absence. You see, he doesn't believe the master is going to reward his faithfulness. He sees his master as mean-hearted and demanding. He is a master who only takes and never gives. And that undermines any motivation this servant has to work faithfully for his master during 
his period of absence. He would have said to himself, what's the point? Even if I make some money, my master's only going to take it away from me, so why on earth should I bother? But it seems that not only does he believe the master will not reward him, but also that the master will not even rebuke him. Uh, the servant says that he was afraid of the master. Surely his behavior suggests otherwise. Uh, even if he was not motivated by reward, surely the more base fear of rebuke would have at least inspired him to do something. Uh, he could have just deposited his minor in a high interest account, but he does nothing. You see, it wasn't that he feared the master too much, but not enough. And maybe his view of the master was uh, that he was a bit weak on discipline, like a wishy-washy parent who lets his kids get away with murder. Uh, does he think that his master will just turn a blind eye to his laziness and his negligence? Because so, neither the prospect of reward nor rebuke moves him to serve faithfully. You see, his view of his master shaped his motivation for serving his master. His functional belief was affected by and shaped by his view of his master. Uh, consequently and soberingly, his money is taken from him and given to the one who has 10. Uh, the principle stated in verse 26 is this. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. So, who does this unfaithful servant represent? There are two options, although we can't be absolutely sure because his fate is not spelt out in black and white in the story. Uh, the first possibility is that he's a genuine believer who is saved but loses all his reward like the person described in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, those who would hold this view would point to the, the contrast of uh, his fate versus that clearly spelt out of what we're going to see very shortly of the fate of the master's enemies in verse 27. So some think he's saved but loses his reward. Uh, the second possibility, which I think maybe is just slightly more likely, although we can't be sure of this, is that this person is not actually saved in the end. Uh, this taking away what he has may well picture his loss of the salvation that he thought he had. His failure to serve the king proved in the end that he never truly acknowledged him as king in his heart. Although he bore the name of a servant, he claimed to be a Christian. Uh, somebody has said that there are two mistakes people habitually make about going to heaven. The first mistake is to think that you can get to heaven by doing good works. And the second is to think that you can get to heaven without doing good works. A bit odd. You do see the point. Uh, we know, of course, that we can't earn God's grace. Uh, we can't get to heaven by our own works, by what we do. But when we have truly received God's grace, it will transform us. There will be evidence in our lives and if there is no such evidence, it calls into question whether we have truly received God's grace in the first place. And that is the chilling challenge of the unfaithful servant. 
after the master's return, did he remain a servant in his master's house or was he ejected forever? And the parable then ends with a sobering line about the fate of the king's enemies. Verse 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. When uh, Archelaus uh, returned from Rome as the ethnarch, needless to say that he wasn't very happy with the level of support he had received in Judea. And on his arrival back in Judea, uh, Archelaus executed swift punishment against those people who had opposed his rule to Caesar. And so it is with the return of Jesus. In effect, they say, we do not want this man to reign over us. And that is not a wise way to respond to the man that God has appointed king over the universe. Because when Jesus returns, he is going to show no mercy to such rebels. The time for putting our lives under his rule is now because then we'll be too late. So a few words in conclusion before we move to a time for questions and comments. Uh, we know the character of our God. Uh, it's revealed not just in his, this parable, although it is importantly revealed here, but in the wider teaching of Scripture and ultimately in the cross. Is God hard-hearted? Is he mean? No, he is not. Quite the opposite. He is incredibly and supremely generous. He's not only given us life and every blessing in this life, but he has given us eternal life and he's given us his son. And when Jesus returns, he will reward those who have been faithful and fruitful servants. And the degree to which we are faithful now will be reflected in the degree to which he rewards us then. And there is no possibility whatsoever that when we get our reward, we're going to say, oh, I'd hope for more. Because he's incredibly generous and incredibly kind. There is Buckley's chance that we're going to be disappointed if we are faithful now. And so you see this parable encourages us to continue to push the boundaries of our faithfulness. How can we be increasingly fruitful and faithful in our service? And of course, this parable also guards against complacency, for the unfaithful servant carries a warning. Uh, we can never afford to think, it doesn't matter how I live in this life. I've got my ticket to heaven. I can leave all the, the work to the keen people. If we say we trust in Jesus, we have been given this minor, and we will be called to account as, we, as to how we have used it. And so the parable says, be faithful with what God has entrusted to you in the gospel and with your salvation. I'm going to pray for us before we then open up to comments and questions. Heavenly Father, thank you for this parable preserved and recorded for us in Luke's gospel. Uh, thank you for this incredible message, uh, this uh, eternal perspective we are given of what will happen in the future when Jesus returns and thereafter. 
uh, the calling to account, and then the reward, the incredibly generous, disproportionate reward to our faithfulness now in a positive way. Being given rule over cities, being given responsibilities in the new creation for the little grains of faithfulness we've exercised now comparably. Please, therefore, help each of us here. Uh, firstly, to know that we are a true servant of you, and then to live out that servanthood, uh, loving you gratefully, but also being faithful and fruitful in our lives, uh, thinking creatively and imaginatively, how can I serve you? And how can I serve you more faithfully to your honor and our eternal joy? Amen.